Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. In her 25 years as a music journalist, Jessica Hopper has profiled the doyens of modern rock and pop. Bjork, Casey Musgraves, St. Vincent, Liz Fair, Robin, and so many more. Her reviews run the gamut from the latest Nicki Minaj album and the, quote, mobile shopping mall that is the Vans Warped Tour to the only album by DC's first all-women punk band, released three decades after they broke up. The new edition of her book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, expands on the 2015 one. That the provocative and mostly accurate title still works six years later points out that rock criticism has even fewer women in it than rock music does. Jessica Hopper joins us on the podcast to discuss her writing from her beginnings as a local Chicago critic to her expansive oral histories of bands like Hole and the women who transformed Rolling Stone in the 1970s. Thanks so much for talking to me, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So I felt a total kinship to your story about how you got into music because it was weirdly enough kind of how I got into music, like a mix CD from an older teenage boy with whom I had very little in common. And I felt like I was faking it at first till I stumbled upon what I really liked, kind of like you did. Um, so why do you think it's important to share those first stories? I think... I tended to rely more on my personal experiences and narratives uh, when I was a young critic uh, because I was still kind of figuring out how to do criticism. What was my frame of reference, you know? And lots of times when I was first starting, especially because, you know, I started writing when I was 16 professionally. But I do think those sorts of stories really are how we learn how to um, say, trust a critic or that a reader can have a way in. Because I think there's a lot of criticism that isn't really um, historically invested in fighting its readers in. Canonical music criticism, you know, certainly the music criticism I came up with was pretty much like, I'm right even when I'm wrong and I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, that it, that it, it really didn't have any... Uh, it didn't have a great investment in bringing the reader in. And it wasn't until I really read someone like Terry Sutton or later Ann Powers where feminist criticism in particular is really what drew me in because I was a young person interrogating all that I was encountering in the world, uh, largely informed by uh punk feminism and Riot Girl in the early 1990s and writers that were able to kind of bring those perspectives to bear but they were talking about broader ideas of culture and history was really exciting for me and so I do think that it can really draw readers in and and particularly listeners and people who are not um, necessarily seeking out a lot of criticism who don't have a relationship with criticism, you know, because we, most of us come to music the same way, you know, song we hear on a radio or on a playlist, an older sibling, someone we think is cool, a cassette from a crush, you know, the, the usual, the usual ways. 
Totally. Yeah, I mean, in your introduction to the book, the first piece, which is not the most recent piece, or I think even the earliest, you talk about how your relationship with music is is really intense and kind of a need. And I wonder if that's changed as you've gotten older, as you've started reviewing stuff, you know, that wasn't necessarily what you were first drawn to. Mm-hmm. In that first piece, I, I talk about uh, being sort of in a breakup depression and, and being very deep in uh, the work of Van Morrison in particular. And uh, my friends coming over and being like, you're still in your room listening to TV sheets? Okay, we got to get you outside, buddy. You know, that that uh, it was just so, you know, uh, just uh, having having those kind of records or even being able to have those kind of relationships with records, you know, that they comfort you and they undo you and they salve and heal your, your wounds. Uh, I do still have that relationship with, with music, you know, I, even though I no longer stay up until like two o'clock in the morning, you know, sobbing on my floor, while I listen to them you know I'm a suburban mom now I go to bed early but you know I didn't always have that relationship with music it took I'm finding out about punk music to really do it for me and I realized in retrospect I was always looking for something like punk I was looking for the punk within like pop music lots of times uh, constantly seeking weirdos and um, iconoclastic artists. And um, what I loved most and still love most about punk music is, you know, this this sort of uh, do-it-yourself resolve and a little bit of a contrarian fuck you. And, uh, and you can find that in a lot of different music. You can find that in free jazz. You can find that. And, and a lot of different records. And um, as I got older, I figured that out. But um, I'm grateful that in the second edition of the first collection, that it does speak uh, a little bit more broadly to uh, both my tastes and, and the things that I've covered over the last 25 years in music. Yeah, I mean, speaking of of tapes and local music coverage, you know, which doesn't necessarily exist at a lot of newspapers anymore. I mean, I feel like we've lived through a couple of really big changes in the way that people consume music or introduce to music or even encounter music journalism. In a lot of ways, it seems more democratic, more accessible, given streaming and the internet. But I wonder what you think of all the changes you've seen in your career. One of the things that's most interesting to me is that there's much less of a role for the gatekeeping in some ways I think that's great and in other ways I think that's really sad and you know even while I was working on the first collection for the year that I was compiling the second edition uh, four of the alt weeklies that I had written for and come up at had all ceased publication name you know uh, primarily city pages which is the first place that I ever drew a paycheck from when I was still in 10th grade. And that's really sad for me for a lot of reasons. I mean, City Pages went away right in the middle of a very crucial time for local coverage in Minneapolis, obviously, in the wake of 
of the uprising there. And, and then secondarily, because City Pages had nursed a, a long lineage of Midwestern critics of all stripes and was really a place of a lot of uh, freedom. And it was a great place to be in dialogue with a local music community. There's so many things that all weeklies covered, still cover, that never rise to, you know, the national radar. And it's it's really a shame. There's so much that we lose when an all weekly and its archive disappears. And so in some ways, I think, you know, the first collection remains a bit of a testimony about what is what sort of writing was and is possible at an alt-weekly. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the death of alt-weeklies, in the time since the first collection came out six years ago in 2015, we saw the Me Too movement sort of bring all of the criticism you've had of music to the mainstream. Were you thinking about Me Too in the context of revising the book for a second edition? I mean, (laughs) as a feminist critic who's long written about these issues and about rape culture within music, not a lot shifted about me thinking. I've always been writing and thinking about those things since my earliest days of publication, frankly. And it is gratifying and also sad for obvious reasons that there are so many Me Too stories that are continually uh, coming up within music. Uh, I'm grateful for the role that uh, my, my work on R. Kelly has played in that. But it didn't really, it didn't really change anything about how I put this book together because I've always been, I've always been thinking about that and thinking about these stories and who we listen to and who we don't. My allegiance has always been with folks whose stories are, have just historically been marginalized within music journalism. I don't think there's enough within this industry in this field that um, acknowledges people's humanity. You know, I think there's still a lot of dehumanizing practices within publishing, within music journalism, within journalism. And so I do think some of that's changing, but I don't know how fast. What I do know is that the makeup of who are critics now is really different than when I was starting out, when it was just generally white men of a certain age and there was a small handful of women. I knew like four other women who did what I did for a long time. That was it. Yeah. I think one of, the, one of my favorite additions to this second edition is uh, the oral history of the women who transformed Rolling Stone in the 70s, you know, who made it as you explain, a credible music magazine and who were behind the scenes at the time and sort of still remain behind the scenes, but for that piece in a lot of ways because they were not really included in a lot of the Rolling Stones history to date. And that kind of speaks, I think, to the the title of your collection and like the rampant misogyny in music more generally. You know, how did you get started on that piece and on like resurrecting that 
history. I'm glad you asked about that piece. That piece really um, also really informed some of my editorial framework in this book. I think lineage is really important. And as I get older, um, I see how much is erased, particularly that would allow younger generations of, of women and other folks to connect with previous and historical struggles in certain fields in music that would allow them a certain connection to history that isn't, that isn't so apparent, that keeps people in a place of constantly reinventing the wheel, constantly thinking they're the first ones to arrive somewhere. But I came to the Rolling Stone women's story in part because I had been assigned a review of Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner, who was the publisher and founder of Rolling Stone. Um, you know, and it's like this 600-page tome. And I was reading it, and there was just a handful of women that they had such interesting quotes. And every time they were on the page, I was like, who's that again? What are they? Wow. And what did they do? And and there was like a line or two in there. And I thought, I need to find out who this person is. And because some of them weren't just that readily Googleable. And Sarah Lazen, who's you know in the copy desk there, she's a she's a book agent, and I do know her, but I didn't realize that was her past. And and so after the book review came out, I wrote to to the author of the book and I said will you put me in touch with one of these women I just I just want to talk to them I just want to figure out what their deal is I called Miriam Partridge who is really the leader of this gang of women who were the first women on the editorial masthead of Rolling Stone and I just talked to her for an hour just to see if, what was there like in terms of a story and by the end I was a little weepy. I mean, it, it was just, her story was phenomenal. Her, her her life was phenomenal and all the different ways that these women shaped that magazine and in turn had a massive impact on just the, the, the professionalizing of music criticism and music journalism, but also things like Sarah Lazen was tasked with transcribing these insane tapes that Hunter Thompson had sent back to them. And that becomes fear and loathing. You know, what we know of fear and loathing isn't, isn't what Hunter Thompson wrote. It's what Sarah Lazen heard. How do we not know that? <laughs> you know, and so I ended up um, talking to these women. And unfortunately, one of them passed the day before I was supposed to interview her, which... Um, I still think about a lot about what we don't know just just because we know it's been 45 years, 40 years, 50 years sometimes and still they don't have their own memoir, they don't have no one's ever really asked them what did you do there? What was it like? Tell me more. You know, how much we lose there and that and that definitely informed some of the bigger editorial rubric around the book documentation is important 
lineage is important. Being connected to feminist history is hugely important. Yeah. I mean, some of the pieces, I mean, especially the whole oral history about how, you know, live through this was not actually written by Kurt Cobain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of the other pieces really did seem like revisionist history in a way. And I was like, I'm so glad to read this. And then other pieces just felt like just history because no one had really written about, you know, Chalk Circle, this all-girl punk band from D.C. before. And I was like, well, I love Fugazi. I can't believe I haven't heard of this, like, precursor where the, you know, the band talked to Ian MacKay and sort of influenced the scene. Maybe why don't I know this stuff? It just Mm -hmm. seems like a, a crime. Yeah, and also so many of the stories that we've historically been fed, you know, the perspectives on or the framing of particularly women's genius is like, you know, they're forever springing from some, you know, Zeus head like Athena, you know, that they are the birth of like a man's idea come to life, never their own. And and I think that's really <laughs> I think that's really discouraging and toxic and and I do think um, you know, that's kind of the project of feminist criticism in many ways is to constantly hold those ideas up to the light and and call bullshit on them, but also to give people's work the uh, respectful interrogation that it so deserves. There's so many pieces of writing and criticism about women that uh, in music that constantly sort of posit them as some sort of like insurgent force, you know, like, Women are here and they're soloing harder than ever. Just look at St. Vincent's Annie Clark. You know, I remember uh, a UK magazine editor getting in contact with me around, I think the third St. Vincent record with this like kind of, you know, they're like, we want you to write a women with uh, women guitarists, you know, about like how they're like really, they're like really starting to shred finally. And we want you to put it around St. Vincent. And I was like, okay, I'm going to say no to this piece because literally I've been asked to write this piece around every single one of her records. But also I have been reading that trend piece since I was reading music press. What? So and it's, you know, those sort of things that really, by virtue of me sticking around in music journalism for 25 years, Um, And as a fan and an avid reader, you see, you know, this idea that women in particular are just, we're just forever arriving. It's so dispiriting, but that's one of the ways that I think this sort of white patriarchal world really cuts um, young women and young musicians, young folks off from their own history. And it can be really shallow, too. You know, great artists are deserving of great criticism. Your writing around Lana Del Rey is really indicative of this, too. Like, nobody wants to believe that she wants what she wants and is a product of her own desires rather than some (laughs) record executives. And it's like, okay, we've seen that story before also, you know, 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. last year. I think one of the things that's 
um, interesting to me why, you know, Miley and Lana and Taylor Swift and to a lesser extent Grimes um, in the last decade, in some ways they were like very modern iterations of archetypes for, for young women in pop. But I think they gave permission for new, for new types and new ways of being, new archetypes. And so I think that's kind of why you see different parts of each of their individual careers be so fraught, is in part because they are so powerful. They're so interesting. You know, I have, <laughs> I have problems with all four of them <laughs> and their music, um, personally, critically. Um, and I've written about all of them quite a bit. But I think one of the great things about music right now is that there's just new archetypes. And when I was first, you know, reading about music, it was either you were kind of a Joan, as in Joan Jett, or you were a Joni, as in Joni Mitchell. And there was kind of two ways of being, which was one of the boys or all the way girly. And I've seen that really change, and, and most particularly in pop music. And I think that's part of the reason that they're so maligned is because the many ways that they give power in particular to young women. And I think, too, especially with the artists that you named, I mean, and even others, like you talk about this extensively in your profile of Liz Fair, just how self-consciously all of these women are really playing with their image and are conscious of it and are crafting it in particular ways. And it's very interesting that, you know, women are never really allowed to do that. For sure. And I think, you know, I mean, this is this is part of the reason that I think women make great pop stars is that we're all so used to and, and it's the right word, accultured, accustomed to viewing themselves through another's eyes. Their every thought, intention, look, you know, how it reads outside of them. I think that's why women make such uncanny pop stars. Or canny? I don't know. Both. <laughs> yes, why they make such great pop stars. Women having that awareness while working in the world of more underground music, i.e. Liz Fair, you know, also Grimes early on. People are just irate because you're just supposed to be, everything's supposed to be natural, disaffected not be aware of how the world receives you, which is what you get when a genre is dominated by young collegiate men. They have the luxury of that. Historically, women artists who were aware of their own image or played with it or anything like that um, really seem to flummox, <laughs> flummox people. <laughs> We have links in the show notes to Jessica Hopper's The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, as well as some extra writing that wasn't included in the book, like an incredible oral history of Lilith Fair and her reconsideration of Joni Mitchell's Blue 50 years later. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.